Welcome to FinCast, the Financial Integrity Network's podcast series. I'm Juan Zarate, chairman and co-founder of Fin. Welcome back to this podcast. In this episode, we will be talking about the Russia sanctions program, the growing complexities and challenges in an ever more complicated political and geoeconomic environment. Recently, Finn hosted a series of panel discussions among experts at Finn headquarters in Washington, D.C. We talked about a range of sanctions issues uh, under development, and we did so with training in mind. For this discussion on Russia sanctions, the discussion is led by Danny Glazer, former Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Terrorist Financing and now a Finn principal. With him is Dave Murray, a Vice President for Finn and former senior Treasury official as well. They are two of the foremost experts on Russia sanctions, having worked on these issues during their time in the administration and certainly now in their work at Finn. Have a listen. Why isn't the administration moving harder on sanctions? There's more of a military solution to this than most terrorist financing issues. Organizational structures as a key component for helping to develop confidence. White knights of illicit finance are a myth. They don't really exist. It's a direct attack on the on the money laundering vulnerability. President Putin's reaction to any of these allegations in the past has been prove it. Hi, my name is Danny Glazer, and I'm a principal here at the Financial Integrity Network. Um, I'm also the former Assistant Secretary of the U.S. Treasury Department for Terrorist Financing um, and spent a lot of time working on Russia sanctions uh, in my final few years at the Treasury Department. So I'm really excited to also be here with uh, Dave Murray. Dave is a Vice President at the Financial Integrity Network and a former colleague of mine and senior decision maker at the Treasury Department, and we worked together on this issue, so I'm expecting to have a a really good and insightful conversation. Russia is a, a really interesting and complicated subject matter, obviously in general, and certainly in the case of uh, the implementation of uh, anti-money laundering, counter-terrorist financing, and other illicit financing uh, safeguards. Russia was already a complicated uh, issue for compliance officers and risk managers prior to uh, the, the sanctions programs over the past few years. It was a high-risk region because of a variety of concerns, um, including organized crime, including corruption, um, including its position uh, in the world, in Eastern Europe, and at the edge of the Middle East, and at the edge of Asia. There were all sorts of complicating factors that, uh, um, that compliance officers and risk managers needed to take into account. Now, uh, with uh, its uh, um, uh, incursions and invasions, of, uh, uh, into, into um, Crimea um, and into Ukraine and the international community's response uh, through the implementation of a wide variety of sanctions, it's become even more complex. When we were at the Treasury Department thinking about and designing these sanctions, uh, we understood that the sanctions that we were putting into place were quite different uh, and uh, more nuanced than many of the other sanctions programs, whether they were with respect to Iran or with respect to North Korea um, or with respect to counterterrorism or counterproliferation finance um, that we had put in place in the past. Uh, we designed them differently, uh, understanding how integrated Russia was into the international financial community and into the international community as a whole. And we designed them with an idea in our head that we were going to uh, be very um, uh, careful uh, to, to 
try to target um, uh, activities that would be able to uh, impact um, uh, Russia's uh, access to the international financial community and, and complicate its uh, access to the international financial community uh, while at the same time having the minimum uh, negative damage uh, to, uh, to the United States or to our, our friends and allies in Europe and in other places. And that was really challenging. And that forced us to be very creative uh, in the way we went about it. So with that as background, um, we're going to have our discussion. And the discussion will uh, be in, in three parts. We will first uh, provide an overview of the, uh, of the Russia sanctions programs in the context that I'm speaking about. Uh, then we'll talk about uh, what that means for uh, compliance officers and risk management um, officers and other uh, counter-illicit finance professionals in their approach uh, to, uh, to business and transactions involving Russia. And then we'll talk about trends for the future. So with that, why don't I turn it over to uh, Dave Murray, and Dave will uh, start us off and talk a little bit about the overview of the program. Thanks, Danny. So the Russia sanctions program is one of the more complex programs that we have, that the United States has. Uh, so to simplify it, I like to break it down into five parts when I have a Russia sanctions program in front of me. And I think breaking it down into five parts makes it much more digestible and makes it much easier to work through anything, whether it's a transaction or whether it's an advisory case. So the first question is, do I have a specially designated national? Am I dealing with somebody who's on the SDN list? If I am, then I don't do the transaction, right? That's very straightforward. Everyone knows what to do with an SDN, which is basically nothing. Uh, the second part is, am I dealing with an area that's subject to a geographic restriction? Am I, subject to, am I dealing with an area that is subject to comprehensive sanctions? And in the case of the Russia program, that question is, am I dealing with Crimea? If I'm dealing with Crimea, then I can't do the transaction. It's prohibited under EU law. It's prohibited under US law. The third question is, am I dealing with an entity that's subject to sectoral restrictions? So am I dealing with somebody who's subject to the financial sector restrictions or the energy sector restrictions? Am I dealing with somebody who is subject to the technology restrictions? If I am, then I apply those restrictions. If the proposed transaction or the proposed deal in front of me runs afoul of one of those restrictions, then I don't do the transaction. The fourth piece that I deal with is export controls. There are export controls that are particular to Russia. There's an arms embargo. There are other export controls that have been imposed by the United States. So I ask myself, am I dealing with something that's subject to export controls? If I am, then I don't do the transaction. The fifth part, am I dealing with an area that's subject to secondary sanctions, potentially subject to secondary sanctions? That one is a little bit trickier to, is a little bit trickier to apply. And you know, it's not clear how the administration is going to use and whether the administration is going to use all of the secondary sanctions that have been authorized by Congress, um, and in some cases mandated by Congress, but not yet deployed by the, by the administration. So the biggest, the biggest secondary sanction to look out for is the one that deals with Russian specially designated nationals. Anyone who conducts a significant transaction with a, with a Russian specially designated national is subject to secondary sanctions. And there are a number of other secondary sanctions as well. So I ask myself those five questions, if I can get past all five of those questions without running afoul of, of any regulations or, or anything that's in statute, then I can do the transaction. If the answer to the, any of those questions is, is yes, the activity is prohibited, then I can't do the transaction. 
So it's just a way of making the of making the program a lot more digestible. Uh, you know, it was a program that we put together very quickly, really, at Treasury. Um, it was a program that evolved very fast. I mean, I don't I don't think there was ever a time where there were three consecutive executive orders related to one country, all authorizing the Treasury Department to do something. Right? I mean, we had Executive Order One Three Six Six Zero. Executive Order 13661 and Executive Order 13662. Um, and, you know, executive orders in the U.S., they're all sequentially numbered. It's in the order that the president signs them. And I, I don't think there's any other program where we where we had to change the program so quickly in response to what was going on on the ground and in anticipation of what would, in, in anticipation of what Russia was going to do next in an attempt to deter that. And, you know, as Danny mentioned, Russia's a very complicated country, much more integrated into the global economy than any other sanctions target we had ever we'd ever tried to tackle before. Uh, so it's a very so it's a very nuanced program. But again, taking it into taking it into those five pieces, it's a much more digestible program and it's a much easier program to understand and to risk manage than if you try to take it as a whole. I think those are all uh, really good points, and those are uh, important principles to keep in mind as you go about uh, your risk management responsibilities. Again, Russia is such a, a, an interesting and unique set of problems uh, when you think about this area. And, and two, two issues that I just want to underscore um, when you think about business and transactions relating to Russia um, is, as Dave said, we have variety of executive orders and a variety uh, of, of, of sanctions programs and, target, and targets, which are all linked uh, to the United States and the international community's concerns um, about Russia's conduct with respect to Crimea and with respect to Ukraine as a whole. However, when you're dealing with, with Russia-related transactions, what you also need to remember um, is that Russia presents a variety of risks that go significantly beyond uh, just our Russia programs. Um, and this gets us into areas relating to other programs, but it's just important to remember in the context of Russia that Russia probably has a more permissive uh, environment with respect to um, its own uh, regulated entities' dealings with North Korea or its own regulated entities' dealings with respect to Iran. Um, and so uh, as you conduct these transactions, you also really need to keep in mind that these are risks that need to be at the forefront of your of your mind and risks that you're going to need to manage in the context of, of Russia. Um, uh, there was recently uh, an entity um, in, uh, in Eastern Europe that was targeted by the United States for action um, because that entity was gaining access uh, uh, to North Korea uh, through, um, including through transactions involving Russia. So you could find yourself um, uh, getting into all sorts of issues. Um, uh, with respect to Russian transactions that significantly go beyond that. And finally, um, as Dave said, this is a, this is a very, uh, by sanctions standards, a very rapidly evolving um, uh, issue and a very rapidly evolving um, set of concerns. Uh, the politics uh, with respect to Russia and the United States um, are uh, not always uh, easy to understand. Um, you frequently have mixed messages coming out of the U.S. administration itself. Uh, so it's it's an issue that it requires constant monitoring um, and constant understanding as to uh, where things are going um, and how the sanctions uh, 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 
regime is evolving because we can't uh, uh, just simply presume that the sanctions regime as it looks today is how it's going to look uh, several months from now and certainly how it's going to look several years from now. So it's, uh, it's, it's, um, the regime itself is something that we need to continue to monitor, continue to analyze, um, and continue to apply. Yeah, Danny, those are all really important points. And it, it's not just Iran and North Korea, it's also Syria. Uh, it's also the, you know, and all these things are consistent with Russian foreign policy. You know, I mean, Russia is pursuing a foreign policy right now that is that is really at odds with the foreign policy that Western governments are pursuing. I mean, with respect to with respect to North Korea, certainly with respect to Syria and to a lesser extent with respect to Iran. I mean, they're certainly at odds with the United States, um, less so at odds with with Europe. Um, So, you know, Russian entities risk tolerance for whether it's Syria or Iran or North Korea, is going to be considerably higher than Russian than European entities' risk tolerance with respect to any of those three countries. So the, the blending of anti-money laundering capabilities within the financial institution and the sanctions capabilities within the financial institution, that's really important for managing Russia-related risk. Uh, you know, Russia, I've, I've heard Russia described to me as the country with the hardest financial perimeter in the world. Um, Russia is a cur- currency control jurisdiction. Wealthy people in Russia, a lot of people in Russia, have developed methods of circumventing those currency controls. All of the methods for circumventing currency controls are opaque. They're very opaque. Russians are very good, are very good money launderers, um, in part because They've been working for, for years, for decades, to circumvent Russia's currency controls, but also because there's been a lot of illicit activity in Russia. Uh, you know, I mean, 20 years ago, it was a transitional economy. Um, so, you know, a, a lot of illicit activity there, a lot of experienced money laundering, and if you're good at money laundering, you're going to be good at sanctions evasion. They're basically the same skills. Uh, so... You know, I mean, really probing transactions and bringing to bear some of those AML, AML capabilities, particularly with respect to understanding the beneficial ownership of the parties involved in a transaction or the parties involved in a deal, is really important to, to fully mitigating and fully managing your Russia-related risk. So we spoke um, earlier about some of the trends. I, I described some of the trends that I thought were important uh, relating to the unstable relationship between between Russia and the United States on a political and diplomatic level, uh, whether it's uh, Russia's conduct with respect to its neighbors, be it Ukraine or Eastern Europe or other places, uh, whether it's the uh, Russia's evolving foreign policy and to the extent to which uh, that's consistent or inconsistent with the foreign policies. Of, uh, of the United States, and of, of European countries, and of other important uh, powers throughout the world. These are all trends uh, that we need to be watching and monitoring. Um, but David, why don't you uh, talk a little bit about some of the trends that you've identified as well? Yes, yeah, so I think really underlying this whole program has been, a, has been an escalation and neutralization cycle, where the United States will escalate sanctions, and then Russia will take some steps in an attempt to neutralize the U.S. effort to escalate, so there there are really five ways that Russia's been that Russia's been doing this. The first the first neutralization tool that Russia's employed has been evasion, which we talked about at length a little bit earlier. The second tool that Russia's used for neutralization is 
what I like to think of as normalization. So the way the Russia program has worked, there are a number of entities that are on sanctions list, but they're not blocked. They're subject to the sectoral restrictions. They're subject to the debt and equity restrictions. So a good example of this is the Russia Direct Investment Fund. The Russia Direct Investment Fund is basically a sovereign wealth fund. It is a restricted entity. It's considered a financial institution. So it is a restricted entity. U.S. persons cannot invest in or lend money to the Russia Direct Investment Fund. But that's not really the way the Russia Direct Investment Fund works. No one invests directly in the fund, and no one lends money to the fund outside of, outside of Russia. In fact, I don't know that anyone lends money to the fund at all. What the Russia Direct Investment Fund does is it, it funds companies within Russia. It provides working capital. It provides, it provides seed capital to, to companies in Russia. So what the Russia Direct Investment Fund has been doing is they've been taking fairly large stakes in Russian firms, you know, somewhere between 20 and 30%. But well below 50%. And then the Russia Direct Investment Fund has been going out and seeking investment from people in other parts of the world. And when they've managed to capture this investment, they've been, they, they, they've been very uh, loud in touting, touting the fact that they've brought in these foreign investors to come in alongside the Russia Direct Investment Fund. So, you know, it's a it's a way to normalize the to normalize the sanctions. Um, and it really to kind of show the world, sanctions don't matter. Um, look, Saudi Arabia is doing this, or you know there are people in Europe who are doing this, so it's fine, everybody can do this, everything's normal, don't pay attention to the sanctions, keep coming to do business in Russia. And a lot of sanctions targets have tried to do this. I mean, Iran tried very hard to do this, I think with considerably less success than Russia has had. But that's one of the tools that Russia's employed, so normalization is the second tool. The third tool that Russia has employed is the presentation of alternative targets. So the US, the U.S. has sanctions that target people who engage in significant transactions with entities in the Russian defense and intelligence sectors. Shortly before those sanctions came into effect, Russia created a bank just to service the defense sector. Sparebank and VTB had been servicing the defense sector previously. And the leadership at those two banks really didn't want to have the sanctions exposure. Um, and having them engage with those sectors, I think, would have been problematic for, for Russia for a number of reasons. So Russia created a bank just to service the defense sector. Now, this bank is running. The United States hasn't sanctioned it yet for reasons that really no one outside of the administration but in Washington understands. Um, because the bank was really, really created just to be sanctioned. That's the bank's sole purpose, is to be sanctioned and to continue to handle transactions for the defense sector in Russia. Those are the three tools that Russia has really for, for more of the outward-facing messaging. For the inward messaging, for the domestic messaging, they have two additional tools. The first is fiscal and monetary levers. Um, and we've seen Russia help prop up entities that have been sanctioned by the United States. Um, and then the fifth tool is political levers. And, it, you know, this isn't a tool that, that only Russia has applied. A number of countries have applied this. Um, but, you know, a political lever is where you take someone who's been targeted by the United States and then you basically promote them or you, you take steps to show that that person is still in good favor with the government. Uh, you know, Venezuela does this quite a bit, um, where if someone is sanctioned by the United States, 
one day, you can pretty much count on the next day there being an announcement from the government of Venezuela that that person has been promoted. Um, so, you know, those are the five tools that Russia uses, and all of those, all of those inject risk. Um, all of those inject risk into the system, and particularly in the case of Russia sanctions, because a lot of global banks, a lot of big companies, still have a lot of exposure to Russia, even though there's a lot of sanctions risk. I think there's more Russia-related sanctions risk in the financial system than there is for any other for any other sanctions program. Um, not because the sanctions are the strictest, but because the sanctions are fairly strict. But despite the sanctions, big companies and big banks have maintained a, maintained a Russia presence and they've maintained Russia, Russia portfolios. So there's a lot of Russia risk there. So you know, evasion is obviously a very direct risk to financial institutions. Financial institutions are on the front lines for detecting evasion and stopping evasion. Um, you know, with respect to the with respect to the normalization. You know, financial institutions are really one of the target audiences for normalization. Um, you know, if a if a if a sanctions target can get financial institutions to not care that that person or that country is sanctioned, then that's a big win for them. Um, you know, with respect to the to the presentation of alternative targets, that's more of a that's more of a sanctions effectiveness question for governments. Um, but you know, it's also important to recognize when an entity is very, very clearly engaged in conduct that could make that entity subject to sanctions. Um, because at some point, I think you can count on the Treasury Department getting around to sanctioning that target. Uh, and it, you know, if you have relationships with that target, then you know that that could be very complex to unwind. Um, and it, you know, the the remaining two, the using the fiscal and monetary policy levers, and using the using political levers. Those are really more for the for the domestic audiences. Um, in this case, in Russia, and you know, present less risk for financial institutions. But it, it's still good to recognize when those things are when those things are going on, um, because the employment of those levers could make additional people subject to sanctions. Okay, great. Well, I think that concludes um, our discussion of the Russia sanctions program, um, and we look forward to seeing you next time for our next sanctions program. Thank you for listening to FinCast. We hope you join us for future episodes. Have a great day.